everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caught, where we talk about all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my Cottet, the one, the only, the DJ, DJ, DJ. <laughs> did, did we... <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Uh, So did uh, anybody respond about the Rodney Dangerfield thing? Because I'm, you know, I kind of, I saw you post that picture and I was like, that's, that's actually hilarious. (laughs) We did get a letter. (laughs) I I enjoyed it so much when I saw that, that it's like, I I had to step away from my computer for a second and just chuckle to myself and wipe the tears away. And I was like, yep, perfect choice. Nailed it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. The thing is, I made it like immediately after we recorded last time and I've had to hold on to it for like a whole week. (laughs) It was just burning a hole on my desktop and I'd laugh to myself every time I saw it. So then when it was time to post the question, I was like, finally time to unleash this upon the world. (laughs) And I do think, you know what's weird is I feel like it actually swayed some people to agreeing with your choice. (laughs) But we did get a letter about it. So when we get to listener feedback, uh, you can hear what one of our listeners thought about it. Oh, I'm excited. I'm very excited about it. Even if it's probably like a a trash talking shit storm. Nah, it's not. It's not. Cool. So, well, one of the things we'll definitely be talking about is our question this week for the Facebook group because we had so much fun with the last one. I don't know if we can beat the last one. But before that, we're going to kick the show off with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass, Part 1 Riddles, Chapter 5, Turnpiking, and because we stopped halfway through the chapter last time <laughs> unexpectedly, we're going to finish this chapter out with Sections 9 through 16. And I'm glad we did because I think we probably would have rushed through it. And yeah. going back and listening to it, I was like, I think I missed a lot of stuff last time. So I think it's probably for the best. Yeah, um, that was that was all on me. I When I started thinking about the last few chapters, it's just like, holy cow. There's a lot of subtle stuff in here that I actually do want to talk about. But right. we were already like, you know, an hour in. Yeah, mm. more. I think we were like almost two hours at that point. We were like, no, we must stop. <laughs> Mistakes were made. <laughs> but yeah so that'll that'll be fun we'll get into that otherwise how are you before we go too much further how are you doing dj i didn't even ask how have you oh, been that's fine i'm um i'm working on training my dogs to use doorbells <laughs> to get in wow and out of the house. how um, is that work yeah so uh the training process is a little bit arduous because the idea is that you withhold the tree until the dog taps at the thing that you've sort of been ringing each time to initiate treat giving okay and unfortunately I had worked previously with our dogs to make them very patient. Oh, and so the previous training is like thwarting my current training because they will sit calmly and patiently and wait and wait and wait and not push the button in, you know, anticipation of getting the thing. So uh, it hasn't been going quite as fast as I hoped it would. <laughs> it's probably going to take three or four weeks to undo some of the training that I have you done You did too previously. good a job last time. Although I, I suppose maybe a doggy door. Yeah, I know, but like doggy doors also like things can get in. You end mm. up with a bunch of raccoons in your house. <laughs> <laughs> you come in the in the kitchen in the middle of the night, and there's just going to be like a raccoon frat party. End up like TJ with like uh, opossums just wandering around. Does TJ have a problem with possums coming in his house? Okay, so if you go follow TJ on TikTok, and this okay. goes for everybody, uh, TJ Rowe. Okay, um, he has like two opossums that uh, don't 
give a crap about him because he's had like kitty food out for so long that they just go eat out of the bowl just like the cats do okay and so like tj has taken it upon himself to just grab a microphone and then mock <laughs> interview the possum as though it was a politician oh my god tj's so funny it's super it's funny like you'll get a kick out of it and they're rewatchable even if uh they're like a bit strange and then he started adding sparkles and stuff to the you know the, the <laughs> eye detect for the of course <laughs> Okay, so before we go much further, DJ, can you do me a favor and remind our listeners what our spoiler policy is? So like a bulldozer plowing through a field to knock down a rose, we will knock over all stops and let you know that uh, the end is nigh and we are going to cross into the spoiler zone. Although I don't see anything that's going to really hit the spoiler zone in this one, Uh, but we will definitely tell you when that approaches. There is one thing, but I'll talk about it in very general terms so that it won't ruin anything if this is a first-time read for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sometimes there's actually, like, some heavy stuff. This one, like, it's basically a reintroduction of a bunch of the, like, subtle things that Stephen King wants to remind you are coming. Yeah. So no new iTunes this week. For those of you at home that are enjoying the show, we would love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes. And if you do, we'll read it on the show. But none this week, so let's forge forward. DJ, tell me where we left off. So we left off with the gang kind of hanging around the campfire. Eddie had just explained how much they had actually done in a single day. (laughs) And it is an epic tale from Ludd to location and somewhere in Topeka, Kansas now. And Eddie just like basically crashes out and falls asleep. Mm-hmm. And bam, we are into the Sandman dream world. Oh, yes. So uh, Eddie basically w- wakes up in like New York, o- older New York or newer New York. I think newer New York because newer, yeah. a reference to uh, Adam Sandler. Which, yeah, of all things. <laughs> of all things. Like, uh, and then like um, the uh, movie reference was The Craft. The Craft, yeah. And that, like that's a movie I haven't thought of in quite some time which which probably places this in what the mid 90s yep it would have been like 95 so so they're basically hanging out in uh new york 95 and this is the first time i can think of where uh stephen king spent a little bit of time actually describing what they're wearing because mm-hmm. i haven't really i hadn't thought about it yeah. very much but it's like oh deer skin shirts with like you know <laughs> yeah. like makeshift ropes kind of holding everything together and, and just the description of it, it's like whoa that's odd and the reason i think he dives into that is because they're walking around inside a 1990s new york and no one's paying attention and the realization and also, i think it shows how much they're no longer a part of this world yeah exactly and, yeah. and we'll get some more of that later on with like the old star and and the old mother and so on yeah he thinks to himself oh we're ghosts in this world and, and so that's basically what they are they're just kind of wandering around in there and so they kind of head over to that uh, area where jake originally saw the rose for the first time mm-hmm. and we see the the mention of the samba corporation and we see uh, the bulldozer, this big red bulldozer with, like, uh, yellow letters written on it. And before that happens, Jake kind of points to the sign and says, you know, don't worry. That sign's been here for years and years and years. And this is where, like, for a moment, you know, you're like, oh, okay, well, 
no, nothing's going to happen because this is this is just a uh, kind of forlorning sign. But no, this bulldozer comes flying up, and first it's Gasher driving the bulldozer, mm-hmm. and he's kind of like taunting him and uh, basically saying like I need to run this thing over. And then we have the gang react a little bit, and then we cut to Bob, you know, the conductor. <laughs> And he's like, the world has moved on, Eddie. You know, no, no worries. We're just going to run this over. It's uh, the thing we got to do. And then finally, right before he wakes up, suddenly it's uh, uh, Roland yeah. driving the the uh, bulldozer. And, like, what symbolism is that? That, you know, Roland is, is headed right. towards the destruction of the Rose. And this kind of, like, flashes out into Eddie waking up and Roland... Uh, starting to ask him sort of um, questions about his dream. But before we get to that, there was a lot of little bits in this, and yeah. I powered through it. Um, there's first, they see the poem on the wall. What, what, what was that about? All right. So the poem is, see the bear. It's in the same sort of tone and the, like, vibe. The ca- same the, cadence almost, right? Yes, as the as the turtle poem that we've heard before. But this one is, see the bear of fearsome size, all the worlds within its eyes. Time grows thin and pass a riddle. The tower awaits for you in the middle. So first of all, I just want to say, anytime Eddie has a dream, it is to be taken seriously. If anything that Wasteland taught us is that this dude's dreams are extremely prophetic. And some of it is a warning, some of it is guidance, some of it is can be taken more than one way, as we learned by revisiting Eddie's dreams after the events that followed, like, oh, wow, this really changes the context. And I'm guessing that that will be the case with this. So it's worth kind of remembering that as we interpret it now, that there may be significance that we discover in it that we missed the first time. But I, at first I tried to kind of break down what this poem is, right? Because I feel like there is a lot in here and I don't know if my interpretation is right. The way I broke it down was see the bear of, bear of fearsome size. Like, I think that that is referring specifically to the path of the beam, right? Okay. I, I, was, the, I just go straight to Shardik just because it's like... The, well, yeah, because they were on the, his beam when they no, were going true. in. So it would be... But the bear is referring to Shardik. And then all the worlds within his eyes, I that could be, again, it kind of reads like it's the bear, but I there's also a reference to the fact that they crimson king's symbol is the eye we saw it on the turn when they were going onto the turnpike and we see it on the bulldozer here and so my interpretation is is essentially that he the crimson king is a threat to all the worlds okay i so the way i thought of the worlds within his eyes was a reference to the tower that all of the worlds are located there yeah and then the first bit was just a mention of the guardian and then the the last bit is basically warning you that, the, you know, time grows thin. Yes. And Running out of time and the, the answers are in the, like, are, you need to look to the past to find some answers. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, kind of what I got out of it. And then right. the, the end, the tower uh, awaits you in the middle is just like the foreboding of like what you have to do to get there, you know, or to accomplish your task. Right. And it's like literally in the middle of the lot, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> the tower is in the middle of the, the center of the multiverse and the, the, the rose is the tower in the middle of the lot, which is something that Roland comes to explain later. He's like, I think the rose is the tower. And so I kind of feel like there's a double entendre going with that, with that, yeah, definitely. that, that line. It's yeah, great then- though. Yeah, and the bear thing though, I, I I didn't really have 
uh, any deep thoughts about that. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just assume it meant like the path of the, the beam that they're on, you know, because yeah. they've lost they've lost the beam and they're trying to find it again, essentially, and they're just sort of walking forward trying to find it. So I think it's kind of like you need to get back on the path of the beam. Oh, okay, it's, and continue on your journey to like save us all, basically. Yes, exactly. And all the worlds are in the tower, right? And that's why I was thinking, like, the Crimson King has set his his eye on taking down all the worlds. Okay, yeah. I, yeah. I think that sounds good. Yeah, um, yeah. So the other things I kind of flew by and we need to back up and talk about yeah. are the signs. So he looks at the uh, – Susan points out the signs, and there's what? We got, like, a, a Samba real estate sign, the Turtle Bay, which, you know, that's another, like – turtle reference and then mm-hmm. what was the other one i think mills um, construction okay and that one I, I couldn't remember why i needed to know that one so um hopefully you do there wasn't i did research these of quite a bit and there wasn't a ton about mills construction i think it's just someone that is kind of working with sombra group okay but i do think it's important that the other one that's not on the sign but it's also referenced in this section is lamurk and uh because it's on the the um i thought it was on his heart gasher's hard it's on, hat when exactly he's like it's on gasher's hard hat so it's almost as if they're using like lamurk technology to enact whatever plans it is that sombra and mills and have for creating turtle bay condominiums okay, so I, gl- I think the point is essentially just to link all of these things together Okay, I'm glad you looked up Mills Construction because that didn't mean anything to me when I read right. it. I'm like, oh, this is, I, do I know this? Don't yeah. know this. No, uh, not really. There wasn't that much about it. Okay, yeah, but those those are all important. So, you know, folks, keep those in the back of your head when you're uh, uh, we're moving forward because the, they'll all pop up eventually. There's one other uh, uh, bit of writing, and this is on the bulldozer's uh, yes. plow itself and this one's pretty important rachel what what did that say in big yellow letters it says all hail the crimson king <laughs> is that right that's right isn't yeah it? i think that's right i'm pretty sure that's right i think it's worth pointing out before you even get to the writing on it is that it's this big red tractor right yeah and so i think with with uh the crimson king's name blazoned on it so obviously the symbolism around this thing is that it is the crimson king right yeah. We now know the Crimson King's agenda is to destroy the tower. The only thing is, though, uh, so uh, this is a weird, like, thing to pick at, but it's like, wouldn't the Crimson King's name be in red and the vehicle be yellow? You know, why did uh, Stephen King reverse the traditional colors of a bulldozer? Mm. And, well, I think and... it's supposed to, like, physically resemble the Crimson King. Oh, okay, okay. You know so, what I'm like, saying? sort of the um, <laughs> our constant reference to that uh, cars coming alive, Stephen King. Yeah, kind of. Essentially, ex- I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. We are. It's a little bit of a maximum uh, overdrive. Yeah, right exactly. <laughs> it obviously is. I think represents the Crimson King, but it also marries this idea that is like reoccurring in the Dark Tower of technology and industry and the crimson king and now and how those are things that are basically attacking the tower right whether it was through the great old ones doing whatever hinky shenanigans they did to break the universe or whatever it is that the crimson king is currently working on that we now know may involve 
Lemurk and Sombra and like there may be more going on here um, that ties all these things together as sort of cohorts in the symbolism of this moment. I think I'd mentioned a little bit ago, but uh, I'll do it again is uh, I feel like St- Stephen King kind of used the wrong color scheme, okay. which is like a silly picky thing to to have on the top of my tongue. But it's like, well, usually a bulldozer is yellow. Right. And Crimson King would in inevitably be written in red but instead Stephen King chose to go backwards and paint the entire bulldozer red and the letters in bright yellow and I think a maximum overdrive came to mind which is is funny um but uh also like why yellow for the Crimson King can well, you think anything or I mean there was a couple of things there was it's a caution color right yellow means it catches your eye because it means danger caution. It's also a reoccurring color that's used in Chardick's clearing and into the poles that Blaine runs into. But oh, I also yeah, true. So I mean, those are all perfectly valid interpretations, I think. But I also thought it could be a reference to the King in Yellow, which is it, it, it's a book of short stories by Robert W. Chambers, who was a horror writer that influenced um, H.P. Lovecraft and who King has referenced him before, specifically in Thinner. So I thought maybe choosing that color kind of maybe shows you the origin or the inspiration behind the Crimson King himself. Obviously, like it conjures ideas of devils, but it could also be a literary reference to this influential horror writer. I mean, the king in yellow, like, that hits on so many levels. Yeah. That's because it's like Stephen King is writing this. Yes. The Crimson King yes. is his character. And then it's the king in yellow. Yes. Uh, as a reference back to a short story by another author that yes. was inspirational to some of Stephen King's ideas. So I re- I think I actually really like that one. That's, yeah, yeah. So I That think checks all the boxes layers. for a, a theory. <laughs> all right, good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah so i mean that's that's what i got from that what about you did you have any reason why you thought it might be in yellow uh no i was actually a little confused by it because like i I mean i i guess you know obviously red on red doesn't work right you know aesthetically unpleasing well whatever but i don't know i was just like well why yellow yeah you know i mean he could have been like in large black letters or in like yeah you know, dark green, you know, chartreuse. I guess right. it's almost red, but you know, it's like and yellow just seemed very specific. Yeah, definitely. And, and then I couldn't think of any callbacks. I mean, ca- caution stuff, you're right, like Blaine and so on. But those are so traditional colors used for bollards and so on that it's not like shocking that it would be yellow. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really put the connection together of like a his name and caution. Yeah, um, that that's an extra even like fourth layer chest dimension to mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah, but definitely. I think I think it's good. I, I like yours the the best, so I'm going with that. All right, that's, cool. That's really Let's good. do it. <laughs> okay, so we've covered basically all the stuff in the dream, right? Um, um I would say. Do you think there's any? I want to know what you think because uh, is, is there any significance to who was selected to be r- driving the tractor and the order that they're in? Um, well, so I think the order I, I, I actually highlighted this. Yeah. Uh, Gasher, Bob, and Roland. Yes. And so it kind of goes from most menacing to most suspicious. Mm. So, like, you start with Gasher, which is, like, there's no um, concealment with Gasher. He's just, he's a bad dude. Like, plain out, bad dude. 
Yeah. You know, there's no argument there. Yeah. You go to Bob. Bob's got more of a sinister nature. Right. Like, and, and even like in the tone and communications from each one of these characters, you know, Gasher is like, I'm going to kill this thing. You know, uh, Bob is like, well, it's just what I got to do because I'm on the track to do the thing that I got to do. Yeah. You know? And then like Roland at the very end is like, well, you know, he's the least uh, ominous of the characters, but also like that's the most heavy handed foreshadowing from Stephen King at the same time. So you went from like obvious bad guy to uh, unsure of bad guy question mark what interpretation do you take from this right and we actually bring that into the the moment when eddie wakes up where like eddie sort of innocently says no i i trust you roland right you know you right you wouldn't do that to us and like roland's like i am not to be trusted i know (laughs) that was wild i'm like well which is like it's funny because the way roland describes himself and like during their talk after eddie wakes up you know um roland basically asks him if it was about his brother and and uh eddie says no and then he asks him if it was the field of roses and no and then you know eddie kind of explains the dream to him and then we get to this point where like or roland basically says like i was the betrayer before but Mm -hmm you know that that was a different different time and then like basically expands upon the fact that he won't give up the quest for the tower and then it's like you wouldn't ever betray us roland would you he's like it's not likely but uh you know always keep your eye on me right wait what right 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 this is this is actually the convert the part where i think there's like some minor potent not i'm going to talk about it very generally but he talks about how he has played the betrayer in the past but he's done with that because to do so would be to betray himself and i kind of feel like maybe this there's a lesson learned here about something that like one of the things that needs to be resolved for Mm. roland to be able to complete his quest properly is to not be the betrayer but it's also just you know like it shows growth on his part that roland is not someone who is set in stone that he's able to learn from past mistakes and change and that's really important just as a character but also for larger plot purpose reasons <laughs> um the, the other thing you get out of this little section too is um uh, towards the end after he's explained the dream roland basically tells him that, that he need to protect the rose at all costs and like Eddie's like, no, 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 there's more worlds than these. And he's like, true, but some worlds are just one. Right. And it's like, wait, what? That solidifies canon that uh, there's only one rose and like it needs to be protected. Right. Which is like, I mean, we kind of already knew that. But yeah, this like basically sets in stone that that's that's how it rolls. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think we didn't know exactly what the stakes were. You could interpret them, but Roland is just like straight up saying, this is the corner of the tower. (laughs) If we can't protect this, the tower will fall, period. We have to protect this. And so we get kind of this secondary quest that, that gets set up in this scene that turns out to be, you know, an important plot point moving forward. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> underline that three times guys, yep yep and, uh, yep, yep. i also on, think you know. that you know the moment where roland tells eddie you know like i have been the betrayer but you need to keep an eye on me and roll and eddie's just like no i i actually trust you and he is kind of coming to this realization and it's very clear that it's 
true what he's saying and Roland is super moved by it and and Eddie has this realization about who Roland really is. It's just this great growth moment in their friendship and you see how much they have already progressed and how there's still room for them to grow and they're getting closer and creating a bond. It's just it's a really nice character moment. It's sort of weird like when you think about Eddie awkwardly and like childishly being like uh, I trust trust you guy you know right it's so funny when eddie's sincere because he's such a jokester all the time he is yep. very rarely serious and you see how uncomfortable he gets being serious but he actually does have this very sincere earnest side to him that eventually that sometimes comes out and weirdly it mostly comes out with roland it feels like have you ever had that friend that was like funny all the time until they had a few too many drinks and then yes. they like get serious with you and they're like, yes. you mean the world to me. You're the most important thing ever. Yes. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa I have friends that are like that and that I like love getting drunk with them because it's the only time I can get them to be softies with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always like, oh, yep, this is the glass of wine that's going to do it. You're going to tell me how much you love me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. It's a human experience. Yeah. Uh, so Ro uh, Roland and Eddie kind of have the moment. And then uh, basically after that, Eddie kind of has trouble sleeping. And, and Roland's still sort of stewing on this whole, um, uh, you know, having to tell the story that's coming up. And so they wake up the next morning and uh, Eddie's kind of looking around. And this is a fun little bit, too, because uh, you don't normally hear Roland, like, complain about the yeah. dynamics of, like, who yeah. picks up and who doesn't. But, like, uh, Roland basically is packing stuff up and he uh, he's packing up their gunna, which apparently means all of their worldly goods. And I, I mentioned that right away because one of the things that happens throughout this little section is that Roland's language that he's using hmm. starts to devolve more into um, high, high speech. And right. for a, quite some time, we've kind of basically given up on um, high speech translations because there wasn't a whole lot. Yeah. And the whole gang sort of stayed in more of a, a natural uh, common language. But mm -hmm. as they get to this section and as Roland gets to thinking about the story that he has to tell, he gets deeper and deeper into the high speech. And this is just one example, but it pops up again and again. Uh, and I, I wanted to stop and point that out. And uh, Rachel, what did you, did you feel the same thing or am I just, no, I mean, it? I hadn't thought of it, but once you said it, I was like, Oh, you're totally right. I hadn't, you, uh, I, it did think it like, it did kind of, it was interesting that they kept like giving us like when they throw yeah. those things in, right? Yeah, I mean, because they take the time to explain to you what they mean. Like you get a glossary within the text, and you're right, the frequency of that has greatly increased. And the fact that you know he is mentally kind of in the past, it makes sense that it's bleeding over into the way that he's talking. So I'm super glad that you pointed that out because I had actually missed it, and I think it's really interesting because it gives you a ton of insight into where he is mentally. Yeah, and I mean, you can tell as we move forward, like Roland is like basically uh, chugging along on these memories, uh, not wanting to really tell them and, and kind of having like hard time even thinking about him. He's, he's put him away for so long. Right, right. Shows you what kind of what he has to do mentally to get back to that place. He can't just recall it. He almost has to live live with it for a little bit. For him to be able to go back to the place. Also, I think it's, there's a little thing that gets dropped here that's interesting. That, like, 
Oh, I guess maybe I'm getting ahead of myself where he, when he talks about how memories, he can tell, he can tell them this memory, but he can't really tell them everything because his history is still changing. Which yeah. Is, which is interesting. Foreshadowing. Yeah. No kidding. I do love this. Lo- I'm glad you point out the little moment where he's complaining about having to do all the work. Yeah, around so the campsite. He's, like, <laughs> he's like, do I, you know, I, he says something funny, but it's like your mom, like, do I have to pick up after you kids all the time? And he's right? like, like <laughs> his exasperation is such a human moment. It's, I, I don't know. It was like this mundane little detail that I kind of was like, this is, it just really kind of drove home the vibe and the, the fact that these people have become comfortable with each other where they're like getting cranky about chores it's just a good little human moment that we don't get a ton of because usually everything in this book everything like has so much significance and plot reason and so to have this little aside where he's just bitching about campfire chores was really nice (laughs) getting back to the thread though since we kind of went off on a tangent about uh roland and their like uh uh, cleaning up stuff yeah uh, roland like shuffles over to check out what uh eddie's looking at and basically uh out past this like mirage of thinnies mm-hmm. uh, eddie sees a giant glass building and he sort of has like a, a a little like external dialogue about cities and glass buildings and roland is sort of like hesitant to mm-hmm. care or even like look forward at it and at first you think well uh crap roland knows what's coming right right but then, at the same time, like, you start to have that same thing happen as the gang marches closer. Susanna sort of points at it as well. And Roland, again, is sort of, like, hesitant to acknowledge it. And his explanation, which I thought is fairly interesting, is there's no point in looking at trouble until trouble gets here. Yeah. So, like, basically, Roland's saying whatever that is, it's not good. Yeah. But we're heading towards it, and so there's no sense focusing on that in the future right you you already know troubles ahead of you so you just enjoy the moments that you have and then this also like kind of harkens back to roland's uh, brooding on the story that he has to tell like usually a sharp-eyed gunslinger like roland is like that yeah this is that you know but you don't get that from this it's like well uh, i'm gonna I'm going to not think about that for a while while I'm thinking about this other thing. So there's kind of a complicated internal thing going on uh, with that. And then we hear again, Roland use another um, odd, odd statement in kind of high speech. Uh, When Eddie points out the, the glass for the first time, he says, I want, and then Stephen King takes a moment to step aside and, and translate that to, I reckon so partner, which is, Again, pointing out heavily handed that uh, Roland is deep in the world of Gilead and not necessarily uh, fully present where he's at. Right. Nor, I mean, I'm not saying that he plans ahead a lot, but for him to just be like, yeah, I'm not expending any energy on this gigantic castle or whatever it is in the, you know, down the road shows you that he's sort of maxed out his bandwidth for right now. What like he can he, handle, yeah. Yeah, exactly, which is, it's a surprising and new side of Roland I don't think we've seen before. No, it, it's definitely strange. And I kind of powered through those uh, 11 and 12. Did you, you have anything I mean, else just or? that we're getting big Wizard of Oz vibes, which I think falls back to this example of, like, how fiction in one a world can be real in another, which is, mm-hmm. like, we learned with Charlie and the Choo Choo. And so <laughs> I, I think... You know, we're getting some Wizard of Oz vibes. And then it, it just made me think about how well kind of our characters fit into the Wizard of Oz 
um, scenario. Yeah. So I think it kind of fits. It's not perfect, but it kind of fits. It's the right number of people. And there are some personality crossovers there. Mm. Um, but I also think it kind of gets to this idea that they're all feeling homesick as well. And like how they're all trying to get back home. And there's like the yeah. no place like home thing. Cause even though these people are from a world more similar to the one that they're in into, all they can think about is wanting to get back to Roland's world. Yeah, and that's reflected when they camp for the night. Yes. Susan's like looking up at the stars and she sees the I think the Milky Way. Yeah. And the and uh for a second it kind of misses a big uh what is it, big sir and uh, and, uh old mother and old star. Oh, yeah, old mother and old star and like uh so so basically like they're reminiscing about uh um Midworld a little bit and like that's strange because at the same time, like Eddie's sort of dreaming future New York, and Jake's even mentioned a couple of times that he thought he would possibly end up going back at some point. Yeah, but now it almost feels like the entire gang thinks of Midworld as home, right? And everywhere else is like a, a new place that's not not home, which is it's it's strange because. It's not like Midworld was ever super friendly to him or... Well, um, I mean, I think they all found in some ways a better version of their life in Midworld. You know, Susanna found someone that she loves and who isn't facing tons of racism, at least not yet. Uh, Eddie was able to kick the habit and also um, break out of the spell of Henry. Uh, Jake finds a family, like a, a chosen family that genuinely loves him. There's their lives are better for all the crazy stuff that they're facing and all of the danger that they're constantly in. Their mm -hmm. lives are like demonstrably better in Midworld with this new family. And this is actually like reflected in this, this campfire scene where uh, basically uh, Eddie tells Roland that, you know, you don't, you don't have to tell us this story right if you don't want to and and this is extra crazy coming from eddie who's basically wanted to know what the heck's going on for quite some time right and he's like giving him a get out of jail free card he's which... surprisingly empathetic to roland exactly like, and this he is repeatedly like... gives him an out and it, it's sort of fun because we we first get that like emotional touching bit with roland and the uh dream story yeah and we get the like sort of motherly feeling with the Roland cleaning up after the gang. Yeah. And then we get this like <laughs> another emotional reach out where it's like, you don't, you know, you don't have to, if you don't want to. And it's like, wow. That's, I mean, I, I it's kind of fun. And then yeah. Roland basically says like, you know, I, I do need to tell you this, if not for you, but then for me, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that sort of signifies that he needs to get some stuff off of his chest and right. coming clean with the gang will help the Cotet basically become more whole. Mm -hmm. Now, you've got a couple of stars here, and I kind of plowed through this. Is Anything I, mean, I miss? I, I would say primarily the thing about Roland, just, again, the way that Roland and Eddie's relationship is evolving is really interesting. That he is getting to see, like, this, this whole section, these sections in a row like more and more roland is or eddie is getting insight into roland and then we're getting insight into roland via eddie but then also there's this little moment where roland is kind of stumbling and not quite ready to tell the story and and eddie says something that is very un-eddie like which is a life for your crop that like roland goes pale and like basically kickstarts him opening up and 
I thought it was interesting that he says something so unlike himself, something that he probably Roland Halley hasn't said to him, which made me think that feels a little bit like Ka putting its thumb on the scale, right? Or I'm glad you brought that one up because I wrote it down and then I forgot. <laughs> oh, good. <to> it. <laughs> well, I um, mean, is that how you took it as well? So actually, I have a completely maybe off the wall take oh, on this, but I'm going to lay it on you. So as Roland is, so uh, basically we've already established that the gang has sort of like some esp stuff going on right uh, whether you want to define it as esp or or you know the shine or whatever it's it's fine but roland as he's been devolving into sort of more of a, a old old-timey roland uh while he's thinking about the past it almost felt to me with eddie saying this thing that is almost like i don't know if he's ever even heard it in right in i don't think he stories. has that it, it almost felt to me like it was like a, a psychic kickback from Roland's deep thought about mm. his past. So like Good as point. Roland sort of associates uh, Eddie with Keithbert, he ends up sort of maybe pushing some of that mm-hmm. towards Eddie and Eddie as a reflection sort of uses some of the words that you would expect Keithbert to use. Yeah, I like your interpretation better. That makes more sense. Because like, it was just sort strange... of like picking up like random mm-hmm. signals on the like Kef broadcast. Yep, exactly. And uh-huh. like it's such a strange out of out of character thing for Eddie to say. And so you have to think about it like, well, what? You know, that's not even terminology that he would be real familiar with let alone to like hit the nail on the head with that yeah no i think you're totally right yeah so thank you for bringing that one up rachel because yeah, uh, sure. uh otherwise i would have uh, my fever brain would have like you uh, would have zoomed right, right it. by it <laughs> um so basically like roland's like okay i'm gonna launch into the story and the story starts with some stuff that we've already heard before. Uh, uh, basically, the trial of Roland uh, with his hawk and the goading of Roland to to basically fight court for his uh, uh, gunslinger apprenticeship, which ended up with um, uh, Martin basically inviting him into a room to see his, his mom having uh, – um, there's a fancy term for having hickeys. But I, uh, I, love bites? The love bites was that it? Yeah, I think so. Or love bloom or something. I don't love know. blooms or something like that. I mean, it it's something that you would almost think your grandmother would describe, right? <laughs> yes. Right. But it, it kind of it's fun. I mean, this isn't a fun scene per se, but like it kind of made me smile when I I read that. And some of Stephen King's we were talking about this before the episode started. It's like some of Stephen King's um, sexual innuendo and description uh... of stuff. It it does sort of feel like your parent, uh, you know, asking you to to bring a condom with you, but doing it in the most parent way, dad joke way possible, you know. Yeah, it's so. Why is it so uncomfortable? I'm not a prude, but whatever. No, no, but it's like if you ever you're you're talking to like your friend that has like geekier parents, and it's like my dad. Asked me to make sure I cast a spell on my staff before I go out. And you're like, what? what? <laughs> That's a real weird way of saying, like, make sure you wrap it up, kid. You know, it's like, just, <laughs> strange, awkward, and like, very it's awkward. That's the right word. It's just awkward. I don't know. I don't know. He's such a great writer and like has such a way with words. It's just sex stuff. I'm like, mm. yeah. and it's because he has big dad energy. 
and, and maybe I like as a younger person, like a long time ago, like this wasn't as bad for me, but now as an adult, like it, yeah. every time it's sort of cringeworthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely agree, agree, agree. Okay, so uh, pulling pulling out of that bit and oh, moving pulling on. out. Okay, <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> Come on, yeah, you dad joke, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah okay, yeah. Uh, so basically, we get the whole view of um of 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 Roland and the battle with the hawk, and then Court warning him that he should stay away from Martin for a while and and let this victory sort of like. Uh, seep into his mind and and provide a little bit of fear of him and so roland like heads down to town and this is this is young roland and goes to a place where court apparently frequents which is this the brothel and and finds a lady for the first time and uh uh, stephen king again's description is like she divested of him all of his weapons except for uh uh, you know the one that he's most familiar with. <laughs> yeah. Oh, cringe, cringe, cringe. Yeah. And so, uh, um, so Roland basically stops, and and uh, the gang kind of sort of has a comment comment section, <laughs> and like you know, Susanna says like the store bought stuff's not as good as the real yeah. thing, and oh, like, oh no, Susanna, don't say it. <laughs> and there's you know a couple other just like little pricks there that are super funny and yeah. and sort of awkward at the same time. Yeah. So we we cut back to Roland uh post coital mm-hmm. and he's laying there in bed naked and he, Roland like as he's describing it he foreshadows with the gang he's like and then the most unexpected thing you would never expect happened happened. <laughs> what? And then like sure enough, you know, we cut back to the story and and Roland explains that his father in fact storms into the brothel and this catches him so off guard that Roland reacts instant instinctively as a apprentice gunslinger and has his eyes still closed but moves super fast to his guns under the bed. And this is naked Roland, like, flying around an old mm-hmm. Western-style room. Yep. And as he finally opens his eyes, his his father's faster, and his father starts to berate him. And we get this description of, like, naked young Roland's butt sitting on, like, what I sort of felt like was probably, like, splintery yeah. you know, barwood. Yeah. And, like, his his dad sort of yelling at him like you've forgotten the face of your father you know say it say it i thought you were dumb but you've proven that you're extra dumb today yeah yeah like really just being pretty hard on him oh yeah and and roland basically like is like if anything i didn't forget the face of my father i had your face completely in mind the entire time right and he describes basically how Martin uh, invited him in and like he saw the bite marks on his mother and he was going to take these, you know, uh, uh, sandalwood grip training guns out and, and show Martin what's what. And this is like a super dramatic bit where Roland's father actually like shoots the these what I guess are only training guns. They're not real guns, right. guns out of his hands. And like. This whole scene is almost the father coming to terms with the fact that if he'd have shared more information with his son, his son would have been better prepared for what kind of trickery Martin could lay forth mm-hmm. in front of him. Uh, but because he left his son sort of like informationless and in the lurch about what he knew already, because he whispers six words into Roland's ear and 
I hope you wrote those down because I didn't. He's I've known for two years, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I've I've known for two years, and so basically, his his father could have prevented a lot of what happened here if he would have basically thought of Roland as less of a kid and more of a a functioning man or you know a, a blooming man or an a, adult or whatever it's interesting i kind of took it as like he felt guilty for leaving his son vulnerable so sort of but like he before he left he knew yeah but i what i'm saying is i don't know that he do you think he knew that i guess he should have known martin would have targeted him yeah and in fact like he that's the whole point of his berating a role is right. like you let him uh, herd you into this position. Yeah. And, and like he goaded you and you weren't smart enough to see around the corner to, to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's kind of it's both both folks fault. Roland for, um, you know, taking the bait. Yes. But also his father for not considering him as someone he could provide this yeah. sort of information to true, and true. prevent him from having like an emotional reaction. And you sort of, you feel that when the father is describing it, because when he's first goading him, he's like, you're a stupid idiot. You know, you don't know anything. And like, I couldn't believe you let this happen. But when Roland explains how it happened, his father is taken back because he realizes his mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And like now he's not mad at his son. He's just sad that they have fallen into this predicament and needs to come up with a solution for it. Right. Yeah. And, and that's at least that's how I picked it up. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think I yeah, I think you're right. I think he's probably there's some shame involved as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's... especially like letting it go on and not doing something about it right. himself either. So it's almost an even bigger slap in the face because your young son took it upon himself to defend the family honor mm-hmm. and you did not. Yeah. And it's interesting because is... we know that Roland was reflecting when he back when he was on the train with Blaine about when like on one of the 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 day what are they called the fair days the fair days yeah Yeah. with the fair day riddles the fair day riddles yes that everyone was saw gabrielle deshane and martin dancing and were clapping except for none of the gunslingers Mm -hmm. so like i think he's looking back and being you know remembering how everybody else knew it was you know that everybody all the gunslingers already knew what was going on but he was the one person who was left out of the loop which like left him vulnerable now, the question, I, I've got a couple of things, and I, I want to circle back for a second. I thought the description of the um, the prostitute in the bed was kind of fun. Yeah. Because she's like, how dare you? Right. And then, and then like, he brings out some guns. She recognizes that he's she's a gunslinger. Like, and she's and like, she just noped and, right out. <laughs> and it's like, survival first, this kid's on his own. Yep, 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 yep. I was glad she got away. They didn't, like, you know... I, I will say for all of the uncomfortableness of Stephen King's writing, like I'm glad that he didn't go unfortunate places talking about the sex worker. I was relieved about that. I felt like the the depiction of her was was overall fairly positive, and uh, I liked the idea of her like being the consummate survivor, just being like, and I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I thought that was pretty good. Oh, continue. Oh, see, there's also a moment in here uh, where we get another one of Susanna's memory visions where she can perfectly picture Roland Young in the room. And Mm -hmm. you could 
take interpret that as just her getting into the story and kind of imagining it but we know that she has this uncanny ability for remembering what that remembering the past as it was because she did it when she was in river crossing and she did it when she was in Lud. and now when she's hearing this from roland she can she's able to perfectly envision what had happened in the past which i think will be very interesting as he goes into the story she's going to be able to not just hear what he's saying potentially but also actually see things as they were yeah, it's a. I think that's that part right there. That clue is what had me circling back to Eddie, mm-hmm. and and that link is because it's sort of like, you know, he's basically saying like the gang is sharing sharing wavelength. Right. Right. Exactly. I also thought that this section gave me a lot more insight into Roland and Eddie's dynamic. I think mm-hmm. prior to this, I always sort of saw Roland and Eddie's adversarial kind of vibe as being very Roland Court. But I actually feel like now with this information, it's very Roland Stephen to shame. Yeah. Like yeah. it can be harsh. It can be cruel, but there is an undercurrent of love there. Well, and there's almost like a little bit of parentalness yes. to it because like Roland is, you know, especially that I, I keep going back to the cleaning up thing, but I just thought that was so funny. It was like, uh, you know, that's like a parent at its core, like, oh, my kids, dang it. They yep. made them another mess with the crayons. And I told them to make their bed, and they didn't do it. And now they've got cereal all over their face. Jeez. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing is just simply that you get the sense that Roland's fate was essentially sealed at this point. You know, Mm -hmm. like, Roland now has his very first quest. And it's all this possibility and who knows what adventures lie ahead, except for that we're being told this now and we know where he is now. And so there is kind of a tragic vibe to the whole thing. Like, you know, it's not going to go well, but if you think about it from young Roland's perspective, there's probably a part of him that was like very excited to get out there and prove himself and be with his friends and do something really important that could save Gilead. And, mm-hmm. and we well, know some that other... his fate is sealed. There's some other bits too here where like, uh, his dad alludes to the fact that once he sends him on this like simple quest that he'll be able to come back eventually. Yeah. I don't think and, you know, gotta... th- that never happens. Yeah. And, you know, we know that because of where Roland's at now. Yeah. And, and then you also have the, the transition, like where basically Stephen King takes a moment to explain that these gunslinger guns will go places that they have never or that he is, his father could have never imagined. Right, right. Which is, like, kind of a, a big foreshadow, but also, like, a sort of interesting handing of the torch. And then mm-hmm. the, the other question I almost forgot to ask is, like, I always, for some reason, thought in my mind that when Roland beat Court, that he became a gunslinger. Right. But in this, we find out that he actually became an apprentice gunslinger. Is that um, I think, the way I understood it, or did I misinterpret that? No, I think he was an apprentice, and he beat him. But he still had his apprentice guns because he had never been awarded like his actual. Okay, guns. okay, that's I, cause I, I was like, no, when he beats Court, he's no longer an apprentice, right? But then, like, they mentioned apprentice a couple times, and I was like, well, maybe I misunderstood it, and that was like the test of manhood to get into the apprenticeship. No, no, you had it right. I think it's because it, it happened too early. His father wasn't there. There was none of the fanfare around the test that normally would probably happen um it just happened way unexpected early and so all he had were his apprentice guns 
Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. All right, good. I wanted to ask that because I was like, I, I don't know, I just got a little confused for a second. Yeah, no, I totally. I, I can, this. I, I, yeah, no, you're totally right. I can see why that would be confusing, though. But otherwise, um, so he basically leaves off with uh, um, his dad basically telling him, like, I'm going to send you on a quest with your friends. Yep. And uh, what, they're going east instead of west, or is it west instead yeah, of east? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's true. You, by the grace of the gods, have not been sent west. One more true gunslinger out of Martin's Road, out of John Farson's Road, and out of the road which leads to the creature that rules them. Oh, that's... I. I Yep. We just zoomed right past that. But I guess he's linking these people together here. Like already what we just learned is that Stephen DeShane understands that there is a larger puppet master. He doesn't specifically name the Crimson King, but I think you could he interpret. To yeah. So all of them working for some master. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know why I missed that like the three times that I listened to this chapter. Oh. But I did. That's actually oh, that's interesting. So Stephen actually was more hip to what was going on than what i thought that's what i was trying to remember the west and east is because i was going to launch into the oh sorry i didn't mean to. oh like, no no, no you're you. fine that's perfect you you nailed it yeah and so then basically like uh roland's father is alluding to the fact that he's going to come up with like a sort of sham reason to send him off to the east uh-huh and and that will save him from the fate of many of the other gunslingers who are getting sent towards the war right and i think also when gunslingers fail they get sent west Oh, really? Yeah, so, like, one of the things that happens, if you if he had lost his fight to court, he would have been sent west and, like, kicked out of Gilead, kicked out of the gunslingers. And so, the one thing I remember about this book is that that has plot significance. Okay. That the gunslingers, or failed gunslingers that were sent west has a major plot significance in this book. So, I won't say okay. more than that. So, that's that's an important to no- note to to take from that as well. So right. overall, what did you uh, what did you think? Oh, I really enjoyed this section. Um, it wasn't quite as like quite as exciting as the previous section, but I love the dream stuff, and mm-hmm. I love digging into the interpretation of it because I do think that those dream sequences are so rich, and I I just feel like I probably only got scratched the surface. That as we move forward, a lot more significance will get added to that dream. I'm ex- I I like that we have a total mood reset. Like you get the sense that like oh we're about to delve into a different world, which is it's funny that Jake joked about like is it going to be a western? <laughs> I mean that's also Stephen King signaling that like yes this is about to be a western. Like get ready for like gunslinger era vibes. We're gonna get into the western stuff. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. How about you? Uh, so I'm glad we broke this up because yeah. there was a lot of stuff that I probably would have powered through. Fast. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of subtle, cool detail in here. Um, I too like the dreams. Uh, I, I like the that we're getting some tech stuff from the future books. Yeah, drop, drop that us a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's no spoiler, but just kind of a, a fun bit. It makes me excited for some of the things that we have uh, ahead of us. And and just in general, like this was a, a fun bit, and yeah. we get to start to see Roland like interact in the old olden days for actual true, as opposed to like these just little snippets. Mm-hmm. And Stephen King kind of alluded to that when they were sitting around the campfire, like everybody had heard bits and pieces of the story, but now Roland's going to tell it from start to finish, which makes it a lot fatter and juicier of a piece mm-hmm. than we've gotten in the past. So uh, I'm I enjoyed it, and I'm I'm pretty excited to move yeah because the, the Susanna or the uh, song of susan stories is like pff, dark yeah 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 yeah, yeah. 
We'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah. <laughs> See, I I guess I'm taking the same attitude of Roland. Is like I know that's a problem in our pa- our future, but we'll deal with it when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, great. Well, for those of you who are reading along at home, our plan for the next episode is to cover Wizard and Glass Part Two, Susan, Chapter One, Beneath the Kissing Moon, and Chapter Two, Proving Honesty. So, as for connections to the Stephen King universe, none that I could think of except for, like I said, potentially the reference to the yellow king, the king in yellow, and and how that was mentioned in Thinner, I guess, would be the very loose connection. <laughs> no Stephen King adaptation news, so we can move directly into our listener feedback, which, let's face it, is the most fun part. So, we did get an email. So, this one comes from our buddy, Christopher. So he said, hey, guys, your show is always entertaining, but never have I laughed so hard as when in episode 39, DJ suggested that Rodney Dangerfield be cast as Roland's father. Ha ha! Incredible! (laughs) Good job, as always. Love the episode. I feel that Wizard and Glass is an underrated book. It's probably my second favorite of the series. Anyway, keep up the good work. And again... Thanks for the laugh, DJ. Yours until we reach the tower, Christopher. (laughs) So I think overall the response was positive and also shocked sort of how I felt. (laughs) Oh, man. The picture you posted on the Facebook page, uh, uh, old Rodney Dangerfield. I can't tell you it was shockingly easy to like put his face in it. (laughs) I was like, oh no. (laughs) All right. Speaking of which, let me head over to our group our Facebook group. For those of you who are listening that haven't already joined the group, you should join. It's super fun. Also, if like Christopher, you have some thoughts you want to share with the podcast, we love to hear from you. It makes our day when we get an email. So drop us a line at the cast of call at zombiegirls.com. So the question for this episode is if Roland's Cotet were to add another character from anywhere in the Stephen King universe into their Cotet, who would it be and why? Let's should we start with ours or do you want to start with our listeners? Um, let's get blown away by their good choices and, and then we'll <laughs> pick our shameful choices. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, so Craig was the first one to chime in here when he picked someone that I will always agree if you can get more of this character into anything, I'm delighted. He says, I would probably choose Wolf from the Talisman, a loyal childlike werewolf who you have to be wary of during the full moon. <laughs> I mean, that's the talisman connections. And this is, yeah. is so strong that like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Actually. That's a good one. Right. And I like, I, for the same reason, I would love to for them to have gone into the world of the talisman last time. I would love to see the Eddie Wolf dynamic. I feel like it would be amazing. And I feel like, you know, Wolf would be, would be so care, like take care of Jake. Ugh. What would you do with Oi though? I mean, I feel like Oi and Wolf would also have a funny dynamic. <laughs> like, well, I mean, like, be... it'd be like two pets 
fighting over, you know, or maybe not. Right? Like, like there could be like a little. over the love of the, the child. Yes. Like, I feel like there would be a little jealousy there. You know, like, you have two dogs. You know, yeah. sometimes they, like, spar a little bit for their favorite person's attention. It could be entertaining. <laughs> okay. So, Tim suggests, he has two, actually, I think are interesting. The first one is Chris Chambers from The Body, just to find out if he's related to Jake. <laughs> so he just wants a genealogy answer. <laughs> but his other one I really think is interesting. And he suggests Carrie White from Carrie. Really? Yeah. Well, what was the justification? So he says Roland, Eddie, and Susanna would be better parental figures to her than Margaret ever was. And she would make very short work of many of the Cotet's enemies. He's thinking specifically like wolves of the Kala. I love to. I love the idea of Carrie getting a satisfying redemption arc too. <laughs> I mean, that's that's actually pretty good. That goes like sort of in line with my pick. I mean, I think that it goes back to this idea that like all of these people in the Cotet are broken people or wounded people. I guess not broken. Mm-hmm. It's not the right word. Wounded people and finding this chosen family. And we just talked about how it's been so much better for each of those people. I think Carrie White. She is such a tragic character. She's not a bad person. She's just someone that's like super hurt and super young and has way too much power at her disposal. And like, she's totally being tortured by her mom. So yeah, I totally agree with that. He has one other suggestion, which is Abra Stone from Dr. Sleep, which I know you have not read, but she Mm -hmm. is someone who has like the most shine, the most. So the idea of Jake having a friend closer to his own age and having a character who shines brighter than any any other could prove useful in the group's adventure. I think that's that's true. So those are all great answers. So uh, can I go next? Oh yeah, I mean we have other, we have a couple other. Oh ones. yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep going then. All right, never mind. Oh, no, I mean I, but whatever. There's no rules. If you want to go, um, you can go. <laughs> well, so it goes in line with all of those, but I I chose uh, Charlie McKee. The little girl that the government tested it on oh, in um, Firestarter. Yes, we're just gonna get like a child army. For, well, because like for all the reasons those guys picked, like I thought she was probably one of the most powerful uh, shine psychic folks, you know, in a Stephen King novel. But you know, I haven't read them all, so I could be wrong. But she also is like a, a young kid who's like basically been mistreated by the government and her parents. Yeah, and like has superpowers. <laughs> And, like, would make things a bit faster and easier for the gang. And this also makes me realize how many uh, psychic power uh, books Stephen King actually has thrown out there. Yeah, he does seem to. Well, I mean, because you haven't even read The Institute yet, which is all about psychic kids. Oh, man. So it's like psychic kids are his mutants, basically. I guess so. And you know what? Now that you're pointing this out, I picked a kid too. So I'll just go ahead and say (laughs) mine. Mine was Beverly Marsh from It. Okay. Because she also also had the like super abusive dad and like, Mm -hmm. and she, I think she is like a full on gunslinger because remember she's the one who, when they start training with the slingshot is like instantly Mm. hitting all of the shots. She's the sharpshooter in the group naturally. So I think in Roland's world, she would have been a gunslinger. Who else we have suggested? Is it all kids and all psychic powers? Um, No, this last one is not, it is psychic powers, but it is, (laughs) it's not a kid. Although I guess I'm trying to remember if she has psychic powers in the books. I know she did in the TV adaptation. Doesn't matter. The point is, Chris suggests, he says, I'm going a little off the path of the beam for this one. But I think Holly Gibney from Mr. Mercedes would be a perfect fit. She's a lonely person with mental issues who has no real bonds to her blood family who treated her marginally. 
She also has hidden talents that come to the forefront when she leaves her real family and comes under the tutelage of a gruff older ex-cop, a.k.a. gunslinger. She learns to believe in herself and her abilities only get stronger as she continues with Bill. Her background fits with the members of the Cotet and her bravery and superior logic and reasoning would be a huge benefit for the Cotet as they navigate Midworld. And mm. I love this answer. Did you read any of the Mr. Mercedes books or uh, Outsider or read or watch the show Outsider? No. Oh, sorry. man. What a, she is one of, I think, one of Stephen King's best characters. She's someone who is on the spec, like on the Asperger spectrum. And mm -hmm. like, I think maybe as the series, I haven't read the third book in the Mr. Mercedes series. I've only read the first two. So she may have some shine ability. I'm unclear. She definitely has some abilities in the Outsider TV show. I can't remember. I don't think she does at all in the book. But I read the book a long time ago, so I don't know. But she's a great, 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 great character. And I would love to see her with them. Because she has that... She's extremely blunt in the way that she expresses herself. And is very intuitive. And I think her dynamics would be really interesting with the rest of the content. Hmm. I feel like Susanna would Latin. get her. Roland would, like, admire her. And Eddie would just be, like, he, they would be hilarious together. <laughs> flummoxed by her not getting his jokes well, i think she would just like burn him so hard you know he's used to being the <laughs> one with the because she's so direct i feel like she would it would be a really funny dynamic and stephen king loves holly gibney so i'm wondering if someday we'll get some dark tower crossover because he's written four books and a novella where she like increasingly becomes the main character so what? yeah because there's three mr mercedes books the Outsider, and then the, his latest book was a, a collection of novellas, and one of them that the the uh, novella is named after, if it bleeds, is about Holly Gibney. So mm. I don't know. And listen, he can keep writing about her. She's one of my all time favorite characters. Okay, and then he had one other little addition. This is not an answer to the question so much as just a comment. By the way, I love the photo, he says, of my photo of Rodney Dangerfield as Stephen DeShane. <laughs> <laughs> I originally thought the choice was beyond bizarre, but for a guy who has to suffer the humiliations of an entire royal court, knowing that his wife cuckold him, what better tag than I get no respect? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so good. That made me laugh. Oh, I'm so glad people enjoyed your choice because I've literally laughed to myself about it multiple times since our we last recorded. That just after I said it out loud, I was afraid the torches were coming for no! me. Like, no, oh, I mean that's such a weird choice, but I just I have to say it because it's. Funny I watch. love it. It makes me laugh, dude. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, awesome. Oh, so once again, thank you so much, listeners. We love to hear from you. I, I mean, I, I would not have come up with some of these, and I think they're all really, really great answers. Yeah. So definitely, if you're not already in the Facebook group, come over, join. I post. Uh, usually, I post on the Monday before we record. So every other Monday, I post a question, and we will include your answers on the show. Yeah, I try to keep a side eye on it, so you'll occasionally see me uh, lurking in the back. Yeah, I try to tag you, but I don't always remember. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> All right, awesome. Okay, so I guess that's it. So, DJ, if they need some more of your pearls of wisdom, where can they find those on the internets? 
Well, guys, uh, if you swing over to deadlantern.com, actually, you can pre-order our latest feature-length film that's going to be released on Blu-ray and DVD and so on. Yeah, I gotta uh, get my hands on a Blu-ray. I got I have. Yeah. I literally have all of your guys' movies, like all the way back from um, Grand from the, Outpost Doom and the Grand Horror. I have the Grand Horror. Yeah, I have the Grand Horror. Wow. Mount, I have them all, so I need to make sure to get my Blu-ray copy. Yeah, so um, you can find it there. Uh, so go check that out. Also. Uh, the Splattercast is back up and running, and while it is not the traditional we review horror movies like it used to be back in the day, we still get together and talk about movies and shows. A lot of Tubi talk lately, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so if you're into the free access to Tubi, uh, that's a thing. And uh, also Unsolved Mysteries, strangely. Oh. So, yeah, there's new Unsolved Mysteries. Who, who knew? That show is mm. really interesting. <laughs> there's that, and then uh, um, that's pretty much it. Um, I may be starting back up the uh, DSLR Film New Podcast <gasps> at some point in the future. What about you? For more of moi, you can check me out on the Zombie Girls Podcast, where we review horror films from a feminist perspective. You can also check me out on Stream Queens, where we review horror films that you can stream on the internet. And you can check me out on More Deadly, uh, which is a podcast where we review horror films directed by women. And uh, I am again, I had another little guest spot on Here's Johnny. I know I said last time there would be an Evil Dead episode, but one of the co-hosts lost their audio so we'll see <laughs> if that ever comes out but we did do a really fun episode that'll be out uh on we call it the hot topics episode where i talk about aliens and uh we talk about whether or not we're living in a simulation is this like uh coast to coast with george nori or something yeah we talk about video games a little bit and then we just go straight in the, t- the tinfoil hour although i stand by what i was saying is accurate <laughs> i don't know dj are we living in a simulation uh, so the problem is, is like if you unplug and can't plug back in again, then you won't know until you're not in the simulation anymore. Right. And then if that's the case, that means that uh, heaven or hell would basically be ac- l- lack of access to the simulation. And and then if that's what you're actually are, then that's scary. If we go the ma- matrix standards, but if we go with the just your computer program. Uh, then I, I, I could I could say like society seems to be glitching quite a bit lately. Right, 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 so, right, right, right. You know, like maybe the machine is breaking down and like eventually we'll just dissolves into ones and zeros. <laughs> it might be a relief over. if we're all just in a simulation. Because then nothing matters. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh on that cheery note, DJ, take us out. Thanks as always for uh listening to another exciting episode of the cast of Ka, where remember guys if nothing else you get no respect <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>